Welcome to the 51st reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 17, Section 13. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions in the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 13. The schoolmen, horrified at this barbarous impiety, speak more modestly, though they do nothing more than amuse themselves with more subtle delusions. They admit that Christ is not contained in the sacrament circumscriptively or in a bodily manner. But they afterwards devise a method which they themselves do not understand and cannot explain to others. It, however, comes to this that Christ may be sought in what they call the species of bread. What? When they say that the substance of bread is converted into Christ, do they not attach him to the white color, which is all they leave of it? But they say that though contained in the sacrament, he still remains in heaven, and has no other presence there than that of abode. But, whatever be the terms in which they attempt to make a gloss, the sum of all is, that that which was formerly bred by consecration becomes Christ, so that Christ thereafter lies hid under the color of bread. This they are not ashamed distinctly to express. For Lombard's words are, quote, The body of Christ, which is visible in itself, lurks and lies covered after the act of consecration under the species of bread, unquote. Thus the figure of the bread is nothing but a mask, which conceals the view of the flesh from our eye. But there is no need of many conjectures to detect the snare which they intended to lay by these words, since the thing itself speaks clearly. It is easy to see how great is the superstition under which not only the vulgar but the leaders also have labored for many ages and still labor in popish churches. Little solicitous as to true faith by which alone we attain to the fellowship of Christ and become one with him, provided they have his carnal presence which they have fabricated without authority from the word, they think he is sufficiently present. Hence we see that all which they have gained by their ingenious subtlety is to make bread to be regarded as God. Section 14. Hence proceeded that fictitious transubstantiation for which they fight more fiercely in the present day than for all the other articles of their faith. For the first architects of local presence could not explain how the body of Christ could be mixed with the substance of bread without forthwith meeting with many absurdities. Hence it was necessary to have recourse to the fiction that there is a conversion of the bread into body, not that properly instead of bread it becomes body, but that Christ, in order to conceal himself under the figure, reduces the substance to nothing. It is strange that they have fallen into such a degree of ignorance, nay, of stupor, as to produce this monstrous fiction, not only against scripture, but also against the consent of the ancient church. I admit, indeed, that some of the ancients occasionally used the term conversion, not that they meant to do away with the substance and the external signs, but to teach that the bread devoted to the sacrament was widely different from ordinary bread and was now something else. All clearly and uniformly teach that the sacred supper consists of two parts, an earthly and a heavenly. The earthly they without dispute interpret to be bread and wine. Certainly, whatever they may pretend, it is plain that antiquity, which they often dare to oppose to the clear word of God, gives no countenance to that dogma. It is not so long since it was devised. Indeed, it was unknown not only to the better ages in which a purer doctrine still flourished, but after that purity was considerably impaired. There is no early Christian writer who does not admit in distinct terms that the sacred symbols of the supper are bread and wine, although, as has been said, they sometimes distinguish them by various epithets in order to recommend the dignity of the mystery. 
for when they say that a secret conversion takes place at consecration, so that it is now something else than bread and wine, their meaning, as I already observed, is not that these are annihilated, but that they are to be considered in a different light from common food which is only intended to feed the body, whereas in the former the spiritual food and drink of the mind are exhibited. This we deny not. But, say our opponents, if there is conversion, one thing must become another. If they mean that something becomes different from what it was before, I assent. If they will rest it in support of their fiction, let them tell me of what kind of change they are sensible in baptism. For here also the fathers make out a wonderful conversion, when they say that out of the corruptible element is made the spiritual labor of the soul, and yet no one denies that it still remains water. But say they, there is no such expression in baptism as that in the supper. This is my body as if we were treating of these words, which have a meaning sufficiently clear enough, rather of that term, conversion, which ought not to mean more in the supper than in baptism. Have done, then, with those quibbles upon words, which betray nothing but their silliness. The meaning would have no congruity unless the truth which is there figured had a living image in the external sign. Christ wished to testify by an external symbol that his flesh was food. If he exhibited merely an empty show of bread, and not true bread, where is the analogy or similitude to conduct us from the visible thing to the invisible? For, in order to make all things consistent, the meaning cannot extend to more than this, that we are fed by the species of Christ's flesh. Just as, in the case of baptism, if the figure of water deceived the eye, it would not be to us a sure pledge of our ablution. Nay, the fallacious spectacle would rather throw us into doubt. The nature of the sacrament is therefore overthrown, if in the mode of signifying the earthly sign corresponds not to the heavenly reality, and, accordingly, the truth of the mystery is lost, if true bread does not represent the true body of Christ. I again repeat, since the supper is nothing but a conspicuous attestation to the promise which is contained in the sixth chapter of John, these, that Christ is the bread of life who came down from heaven, that visible bread must intervene in order that that spiritual bread may be figured, and thus we would destroy all the benefits with which God here favors us for the purpose of sustaining our infirmity. Then on what ground could Paul infer that we are all one bread and one body in partaking together of that one bread, if only the semblance of bread and not the natural reality remained? Section 15. They could not have been so shamefully deluded by the impostures of Satan had they not been fascinated by the erroneous idea that the body of Christ included under the bread is transmitted by the bodily mouth into the belly. The cause of this brutish imagination was that consecration had the same effect with them as magical incantation. They overlooked the principle that bread is a sacrament to none but those to whom the word is addressed. Just as the water of baptism is not changed in itself, it begins to be to us what it formerly was not as soon as the promise is annexed. This will better appear from the example of a similar sacrament. The water gushing from the rock in the desert was to the Israelites a badge and sign of the same thing that is figured to us in the supper by wine. For Paul declares that they drank the same spiritual drink, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. But the water was common to the herds and flocks of the people. Hence it is easy to infer that in the earthly elements when employed for a spiritual use, no other conversion takes place than in respect of men, inasmuch as they are to them seals of promises. Moreover, since it is the purpose of God, as I have repeatedly inculcated, to raise us up to himself by such vehicles, those who indeed call us to Christ, but to Christ lurking invisibly under the bread, impiously by their perverseness, defeat this object. For it is impossible for the mind of man to disentangle himself from the immensity of space and descend to Christ even above the heavens. What nature denied them, they attempted to gain by a noxious remedy. Remaining on the earth, they felt no need of a celestial proximity to Christ. Such was the necessity which impelled them to transfigure the body of Christ. In the age of Bernard, though a harsher mode of speech had prevailed, transubstantiation was not yet recognized. And in all previous ages, the similitude in the mouths of all was that a spiritual reality was conjoined with bread and wine in this sacrament. As to the terms, they think they answer acutely, though they adduce nothing relevant to the case in hand. The rod of Moses, they say, when turned into a serpent, though it acquires the name of a serpent, still retains its former name, and is called a rod. And thus, according to them, it is equally probable that though the bread passes into a new substance, it is still called by a catechesis, and not inaptly what it still appears to the eye to be. 
But what resemblance, real or apparent, do they find between an illustrious miracle and their fictitious illusion, of which no eye on the earth is witness? The Magi, by their impostures, had persuaded the Egyptians that they had a divine power above the ordinary course of nature to change created beings. Moses comes forth, and after exposing their fallacies, shows that the invincible power of God is on his side, since his rod swallows up all the other rods. But as that conversion was visible to the eye, we have already observed that it has no reference to the case in hand. Shortly after, the rod visibly resumed its form. It may be added that we know not whether this was an extemporary conversion of substance, for we must attend to the allusion to the rods of the magicians, which the prophet did not choose to term serpents, thus he might seem to insinuate a conversion which had no existence, because those impostors had done nothing more than blind the eyes of the spectators. But what resemblance is there between that expression and the following, quote, the bread which we break, unquote, quote, as often as you eat this bread, unquote, Quote, the communicated in the breaking of bread, unquote, and so forth. It is certain that the eye only was deceived by the incantation of the magicians. The matter is more doubtful with regard to Moses, by whose hand it was not more difficult for God to make a serpent out of a rod, and again to make a rod out of a serpent, than to clothe angels with corporeal bodies, and a little after, unclothe them. If the case of the sacrament were at all akin to this, there might be some color for their explanation. Let it therefore remain fixed, that there is no true and fit promise in the supper that the flesh of Christ is truly meat, unless there is a correspondence in the true substance of the external symbol. But as one error gives rise to another, a passage in Jeremiah has been so absurdly rested to prove transubstantiation that it is painful to refer to it. The prophet complains that wood was placed in his bread, intimating that by the cruelty of his enemies his bread was infected with bitterness, as David by a similar figure complains. Quote, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Unquote. Psalm 69, verse 21. These men would allegorize the expression to mean that the body of Christ was nailed to the wood of the cross. But some of the fathers thought so. As if we ought not rather to pardon their ignorance and bury the disgrace than to add impudence and bring them into hostile conflict with the genuine meaning of the prophet. Section 16. Some who see that the analogy between the sign and the thing signified cannot be destroyed without destroying the truth of the sacrament admit that the bread of the supper is truly the substance of an earthly and corruptible element and cannot suffer any change in itself but must have the body of Christ included under it. If they would explain this to mean that when the bread is held forth in the sacrament an exhibition of the body is annexed because the truth is inseparable from its sign I would not greatly object but because fixing the body itself in the bread, they attach to it an ubiquity contrary to its nature, and by adding under the bread, will have it that it lies hid under it. I must employ a short time in exposing the craft and dragging them forth from their concealments. Here, however, it is not my intention professionally to discuss the whole case. I mean only to lay the foundations of a discussion which will afterwards follow in its own place. They insist, then, that the body of Christ is invisible and immense, so that it may be hid under bread, because they think that there is no other way by which they can communicate with him than by his descending into the bread, though they do not comprehend the mode of descent by which he raises us up to himself. They employ all the colors they possibly can, but after they have said all, it is sufficiently apparent that they insist on the local presence of Christ. How so? because they cannot conceive any other participation of flesh and blood than that which consists either in local conjunction and contact or in some gross method of enclosing. Section 17. Some, in order obstinately to maintain the error which they have once rashly adopted, hesitate not to assert that the dimensions of Christ's flesh are not more circumscribed than those of heaven and earth. His birth as an infant, his growth, his extension on the cross, his confinement in the sepulchre were effected, they say, by a kind of dispensation that he might perform the offices of being born, of dying, and of other human acts. His being seen with his wanted bodily appearance after the resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his appearance after his ascension to Stephen and to Paul, were the effect of the same dispensation that it might be made apparent to the eye of man that he was constituted king in heaven. What is this but to call forth Marcion from his grave? For there cannot be a doubt that the body of Christ, if so constituted, was a phantasm or was fantastical. 
Some employ rather more subtle evasion, that the body which is given in the sacrament is glorious and immortal, and that therefore there is no absurdity in its being contained under the sacrament in various places, or in no place, and in no form. But I ask, what did Christ give to his disciples the day before he suffered? Do not the word say that he gave the mortal body which was to be delivered shortly after? But, say they, he had previously manifested his glory to the three disciples on the mount. Matthew 17, verse 2. This is true, but his purpose was to give them for the time a taste of immortality. Still, they cannot find there a twofold body, but only the one which he had assumed arrayed in new glory. When he distributed his body in the first supper, the hour was at hand in which he was, quote, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 4. So far was he from intending at that time to exhibit the glory of his resurrection. And here what a door is open to Marcion if the body of Christ was seen humble and mortal in one place, glorious and immortal in another. And yet if their opinion is well founded, the same thing happens every day because they are forced to admit that the body of Christ, which is in itself visible, lurks invisibly under the symbol of bread. And yet those who send forth such monstrous dogmas, so far from being ashamed at the disgrace, assail us with virulent invectives for not subscribing to them. Section 18. But assuming that the body and blood of Christ are attached to the bread and wine, then the one must necessarily be dissevered from the other. For as the bread is given separately from the cup, so the body united to the bread must be separated from the blood included in the cup. For since they affirm that the body is in the bread and the blood is in the cup, while the bread and wine are in regard to space at some distance from each other, they cannot by any quibble evade the conclusion that the body must be separated from the blood. Their usual pretense viz., that the blood is in the body, and the body again in the blood, by what they call concomitants, is more than frivolous, since the symbols in which they are included are thus distinguished. But if we are carried to heaven with our eyes and minds, that we may there behold Christ in the glory of his kingdom, as the symbols invite us to him in his integrity, so under the symbol of bread we must feed on his body, and under the symbol of wine drink separately of his blood, and thereby have the full enjoyment of him. For though he withdrew his flesh from us, and with his body ascended to heaven, he, however, sits at the right hand of the Father, that is, he reigns in power and majesty and the glory of the Father. This kingdom is not limited by any intervals of space, nor circumscribed by any dimensions. Christ can exert his energy wherever he pleases, in earth and heaven, can manifest his presence by the exercise of his power, can always be present with his people, breathing into them his own life, and live in them, sustain, confirm, and invigorate them, and preserve them safe, just as if he were with them in the body, and fine can feed them with his own body, communion with which he transfuses into them. After this manner, the body and blood of Christ are exhibited to us in the sacrament. Section 19. The presence of Christ in the supper we must hold to be such as neither affixes him to the element of bread, nor encloses him in bread, nor circumscribes him in any way. This would obviously detract from his celestial glory. And it must, moreover, be such as neither divests him of his just dimensions, nor dissevers him by differences of place, nor assigns to him a body of boundless dimensions diffused through heaven and earth. All these things are clearly repugnant to his true human nature. Let us never allow ourselves to lose sight of the two restrictions. First, let there be nothing derogatory to the heavenly glory of Christ. This happens whenever he is brought under the corruptible elements of this world, or is affixed to any earthly creatures. Secondly, let no property be assigned to his body inconsistent with his human nature. This is done when a desire said to be infinite are made to occupy a variety of places at the same time. But when these absurdities are discarded, I willingly admit anything which helps to express the true and substantial communication of the body and blood of the Lord as exhibited to believers under the sacred symbols of the supper, understanding that they are received not by the imagination or intellect merely, but are enjoyed in reality as the food of eternal life. For the odium with which this view is regarded by the world, and the unjust prejudice incurred by its defense, there is no cause unless it be in the fearful fascinations of Satan. What we teach on the subject is in perfect accordance with Scripture, contains nothing absurd, obscure, or ambiguous, is not unfavorable to true piety and solid edification, in short, has nothing in it to offend, save that for some ages, while the ignorance and barbarism of sophists 
reigned in the church, the clear light and open truth were unbecomingly suppressed. And yet as Satan by means of turbulent spirits is still in the present day exerting himself to the utmost to bring dishonor on this doctrine by all kinds of calumny and reproach, it is right to assert and defend it with the greatest care. Section 20 Before we proceed farther, we must consider the ordinance itself as instituted by Christ, because the most plausible objection of our opponents is that we abandon his words. To free ourselves from the obloquy with which they thus load us, the fittest course will be to begin with an interpretation of the words. Three evangelists and Paul relate that our Savior took bread, and after giving thanks, break it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given or broken for you. Of the cup, Matthew and Mark say, quote, This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins, unquote. Matthew 26, verse 26, and Mark 14, verse 22. Luke and Paul say, quote, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, unquote. Luke 22, verse 20, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. The advocates of transubstantiation insist that by the pronoun this is denoted the appearance of bread because the whole complexion of our Savior's address is an act of consecration and there is no substance which can be demonstrated. But if they adhere so religiously to the words inasmuch as that which our Savior gave to his disciples he declared to be his body, there is nothing more alien from the strict meaning of the words than the fiction that what was bread is now body. What Christ takes into his hands and gives to the apostles, he declares to be his body. But he has taken bread, and therefore, who sees not, that what is given is still bread. Hence, nothing can be more absurd than to transfer what is affirmed of bread to the species of bread. Others, in interpreting the particle is, as equivalent to being transubstantiated, have recourse to a gloss which is forced and violently rested. They have no ground, therefore, for pretending that they are moved by reverence for the words. The use of the term is for being converted into something else is unknown to every tongue and nation. With regard to those who leave the bread and the supper and affirm that it is the body of Christ, there is great diversity among them. Those who speak more modestly, though they insist upon the letter, this is my body, afterwards abandon this strictness, and observe that it is equivalent to saying that the body of Christ is with the bread, in the bread, and under the bread. To the reality which they affirm we have already adverted, and will by and by at greater length. I am not only considering the words by which they say they are prevented from admitting the bread is called body, because it is a sign of the body. But if they shun everything like a metaphor, why do they leap from the simple demonstration of Christ to modes of expression which are widely different? For there is a great difference between saying that the bread is the body and that the body is with the bread. But saying it is impossible to maintain the simple proposition that the bread is the body, they endeavor to evade the difficulty by concealing themselves under those forms of expression. Others who are bolder hesitate not to assert that, strictly speaking, the bread is body, and in this way prove that they are truly of the latter. If it is objected that the bread therefore is Christ, and being Christ is God, they will deny it because the words of Christ do not expressly say so. But they gain nothing by their denial, since all agree that the whole Christ is offered to us in the supper. It is intolerable blasphemy to affirm without figure of a fading and corruptible element that it is Christ. I now ask them if they hold the two propositions to be identical. Christ is the Son of God, and bread is the body of Christ. If they concede that they are different, and this, whether they will or not, they will be forced to do, let them tell wherein is the difference. All which they can adduce is, I presume, that the bread is called body in a sacramental manner. Hence it follows that the words of Christ are not subject to the common rule, and ought not to be tested grammatically. I ask all these rigid and obstinate exactors of the letter whether, when Luke and Paul call the cup, the testament in blood, they do not express the same thing as in the previous clause when they call bread the body. There certainly was the same solemnity in the one part of the mystery as in the other, and as brevity is obscure, the longer sentence better elucidates the meaning. As often, therefore, as they contend from the one expression that the bread is body, I will adduce an apt interpretation from the longer expression that it is a testament in the body. What? Can we seek for sure our faithful expounders than Luke and Paul? I have no intention, however, to detract in any respect from the communication of the body of Christ, which I have acknowledged. 
I only meant to expose the foolish perverseness with which they carry on a war of words. The bread I understand on the authority of Luke and Paul to be the body of Christ, because it is a covenant in the body. If they impugn this, their quarrel is not with me, but with the Spirit of God. However often they may repeat that reverence for the words of Christ will not allow them to give a figurative interpretation to what is spoken plainly, the pretext cannot justify them in thus rejecting all the contrary arguments which we adduce. Meanwhile, as I have already observed, it is proper to attend the force of what is meant by testament in the body and blood of Christ. The covenant ratified by the sacrifice of death would not avail us without the addition of that secret communication by which we are made one with Christ. Section 21. It remains therefore to hold that on account of the affinity which the thing signified had with their signs, the name of the thing itself is given to the sign figuratively, indeed, but very appropriately. I say nothing of allegories and parables, lest it should be alleged that I am seeking subterfuges and slipping out of the present question. I say that the expression which is uniformly used in Scripture when the sacred mysteries are treated of is metonymical, for you cannot otherwise understand the expression that circumcision is a, quote, covenant, unquote, that the Lamb is the Lord's, quote, Passover, unquote, that the sacrifices of the law are expiations, that the rock from which the water flowed in the desert was Christ, unless you interpret them metonymically, unquote. Genesis 17, verse 10, Exodus 12, verse 11, and 17, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Nor is the name merely transferred from the superior to the inferior, but, on the contrary, the name of the visible sign is given to the thing signified, as when God is said to have appeared to Moses in the bush. The Ark of the Covenant is called God, and the face of God, and the dove is called the Holy Spirit. Exodus 3, verse 2, and Psalm 84, verse 8, and 42, verse 3, and Matthew 3, verse 16. For although the sign differs essentially from the thing signified, the latter being spiritual and heavenly, the former corporeal and visible, yet as it not only figures the thing which is employed to represent as a naked and empty badge, but also truly exhibits it, why should not its name be justly applied to the thing? that its symbols humanly devised, which are rather the images of absent than the marks of present things, and of which they are very often most fallacious types, are sometimes honored with their names, with much greater reason do the institutions of God borrow the names of things, of which they always bear a sure and by no means fallacious signification, and have the reality annexed to them. So great, then, is the similarity, and so close the connection between the two, that it is easy to pass from the one to the other. Let our opponents, therefore, cease to indulge their mirth in calling us tropists when we explain the sacramental mode of expression according to the common use of Scripture. For while the sacraments agree in many things, there is also in this metonymy a certain community in all respects between them. As, therefore, the Apostle says that the rock from which spiritual water flowed forth to the Israelites was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, and was thus a visible symbol under which that spiritual drink was truly perceived, though not by the eye, so the body of Christ is now called bread, inasmuch as it is a symbol under which our Lord offers us the true eating of his body. Thus any one should despise this as a novel invention, the view which Augustine took and expressed was the same. Quote, had not the sacraments a certain resemblance to the things of which they are sacraments, they would not be sacraments at all. And from this resemblance, they generally have the names of the things themselves. This, as the sacrament of the body of Christ, is, after a certain manner, the body of Christ, and the sacrament of Christ is the blood of Christ. So the sacrament of faith is faith." Unquote. He has many similar passages which it would be superfluous to collect, as that one may suffice. I need only remind my readers that the same doctrine is taught by that holy man in his epistle to Evodius, where Augustine teaches that nothing is more common than metonymy and mysteries. It is a frivolous quibble to object that there is no mention of the supper. For this objection sustained, it would follow that we are not entitled to argue from the genus to the species. For example, every animal is endued with motion, and therefore the horse and the ox are endued with motion. Indeed, longer discussion is rendered unnecessary by the words of the saint himself, where he says that when Christ gave the symbol of his body, he did not hesitate to call it his body. He elsewhere says, quote, Wonderful was the patience of Christ in admitting Judas to the feast, in which he committed and delivered to the disciples the symbol of his body and blood, unquote. Section 22. Should any morose person shutting his eyes to everything else insist upon the expression, 
this is as distinguishing this mystery from all others? The answer is easy. They say that the substantive verb is so emphatic as to leave no room for interpretation. Though I should admit this, I answer that the substantive verb occurs in the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, where he calls the bread the communion of the body of Christ. But communion is something different from the body itself. Nay, when the sacraments are treated of, the same word occurs. Quote, My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Unquote. Genesis 17, verse 13. Quote, this is the ordinance of the Passover. Unquote. Exodus 12, verse 43. To say no more when Paul declares that the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Why should the substantive verb in that passage be deemed less emphatic than in the discourse of Christ? When John says, quote, The Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Unquote. John 7, verse 39. I should like to know what is the force of the substantive verb. If the rule of our opponents is rigidly observed, the eternal essence of the Spirit will be destroyed, as if he had only begun to be after the ascension of Christ. Let them tell me in fine what is meant by the declaration of Paul, that baptism is, quote, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, unquote. Titus 3, verse 5, though it is certain that to many it was of no use. But they cannot be more effectually refuted than by the expression of Paul that the Church is Christ. For, after introducing the similitude of the human body, he adds, quote, So also is Christ, unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, when he means not the only begotten Son of God in himself, but in his members. I think I have now gained this much, that all men of sense and integrity will be disgusted with the calumnies of our enemies when they give out that we discredit the words of Christ, that we embrace them not less obediently than they do and ponder them with greater reverence. Nay, their supine security proves that they do not greatly care what Christ meant, provided it furnishes them with a shield to defend their obstinacy, while our careful investigation should be an evidence of the authority which we yield to Christ. They invidiously pretend that the human reason will not allow us to believe that Christ uttered with his sacred mouth, but how naughtily they endeavor to fix this odium upon us I have already in a great measure shown, and will still show more clearly. Nothing, therefore, prevents us from believing Christ, speaking, and from acquiescing in everything to which he intimates his assent. The only question here is whether it be unlawful to inquire into the genuine meaning. Section 23. Those worthy masters to show that they are of the letter forbid us to deviate in the least from the letter. On the contrary, when Scripture calls God a man of war, as I see that the expression would be too harsh if not interpreted, I have no doubt that the similitude is taken from man. And indeed, the only pretext which enabled the anthropomorphites to annoy the Orthodox Fathers was by fastening on the expressions, quote, the eyes of God see, unquote, quote, it ascended to his ears, unquote, quote, his hand is stretched out, unquote, quote, the earth is his footstool, unquote, and exclaimed that God was deprived of the body which Scripture assigns to him. Were this rule admitted, complete barbarism would bury the whole light of faith, what monstrous absurdities shall fanatical men not be able to extract if they are allowed to urge every knotty point in support of their dogmas? Their objection, that it is not probable that when Christ was providing special comfort for the apostles in adversity, he spoke enigmatically or obscurely, supports our view. For had it not occurred to the apostles that the bread was called the body figuratively as being a symbol of the body, the extraordinary nature of the thing would doubtless have filled them with perplexity. For at this very period John relates that the slightest difficulties perplexed them, John 14 verses 5 and 8, and 16 verse 17. They debate among themselves how Christ is to go to the Father, and not understanding that the things which were said referred to the Heavenly Father, raise a question as to how he is to go out of the world until they shall see him. How then could they have been so ready to believe what is repugnant to all reason, viz., that Christ was seated at table under their eye, and yet was contained invisible under the bread? If they attest their consent by eating this bread without hesitation, it is plain that they understood the words of Christ in the same sense as we do, considering what ought not to seem unusual when mysteries are spoken of, that the name of the thing signified was transferred to the sign. There was therefore to the disciples, as there is to us, clear and sure consolation not involved in any enigma. 
and the only reason why certain persons reject our interpretation is because they are blinded by delusion of the devil to introduce the darkness of enigma instead of the obvious interpretation of an appropriate figure. Besides, if we insist strictly on the words, our Savior will be made to affirm erroneously something of the bread different from the cup. He calls the bread body and the wine blood. There must either be a confusion in terms, or there must be a division separating the body from the blood. Nay, quote, this is my body, unquote, may be as truly affirmed of the cup as of the bread, and it may in turn be affirmed that the bread is the blood. If they answer that we must look to the end or use for which symbols were instituted, I admit it. But still, they will not disencumber themselves of the absurdity which their error drags along with it, viz. that the bread is blood and the wine is body. Then I know not what they mean when they concede that bread and body are different things, and yet maintain that the one is predicated of the other properly and without figure, as if one were to say that a garment is different from a man and yet is properly called a man. Still, as if the victory depended on obstinacy and invective, they say that Christ is charged with falsehood when it is attempted to interpret his words. It will now be easy for the reader to understand the injustice which is done to us by those carpers at syllables when they possess the sample with the idea that we bring discredit on the words of Christ, words which, as we have shown, are madly perverted and confounded by them, but are faithfully and accurately expounded by us. Section 24 this infamous falsehood cannot be completely wiped away without disposing of another charge. They give out that we are so wedded to human reason that we attribute nothing more to the power of God than the order of nature admits and common sense dictates. From these wicked calumnies I appeal to the doctrine which I have delivered, a doctrine which makes it sufficiently clear that I by no means measure this mystery by the capacity of human reason or subject it to the laws of nature. I ask whether it is from physics we have learned that Christ feeds our souls from heaven with his flesh, just as our bodies are nourished by bread and wine. How has flesh this virtue of giving life to our souls? All will say that it is not done naturally. Not more agreeable is it to human reason to hold that the flesh of Christ penetrates to us so as to be our food. In short, everyone who may have tasted our doctrine will be carried away with admiration of the secret power of God. But these worthy zealots fabricate for themselves a miracle, and think that without it God himself and his power vanish away. I would again admonish the reader carefully to consider the nature of our doctrine, whether it depends on common apprehension, or whether after having surmounted the world on the wings of faith, it rises to heaven. We say that Christ descends to us as well by the external symbol as by his spirit, that he may truly quicken our souls by the substance of his flesh and blood. He who feels not that in these few words are many miracles is more than stupid, since nothing is more contrary to nature than to derive the spiritual and heavenly life of the soul from flesh, which received its origin from the earth and was subjected to death, Nothing more incredible than that things separated by the whole space between heaven and earth should, notwithstanding of the long distance, not only be connected, but united so that souls receive aliment from the flesh of Christ. Let preposterous men then cease to assail us with the vile calumny that we malignantly restrict the boundless power of God. They either foolishly err or wickedly lie. The question here is not what could God do, but what has he been pleased to do? We affirm that he has done what pleased him, and it pleased him that Christ should be in all respects like his brethren, quote, yet without sin, unquote. Hebrews 4, verse 15. What is our flesh? Is it not that which consists of certain dimensions, is confined within a certain place, is touched and seen? And why, say they, may not God make the same flesh occupied several different places, so as not to be confined to any particular place? and so as to have neither measure nor species. Fool, why do you require the power of God to make a thing to be at the same time flesh and not flesh? It is just as if you were to insist on his making light to be at the same time light and darkness. He wills light to be light, darkness to be darkness, flesh to be flesh. True, when he so chooses, he will convert darkness into light, and light into darkness. But when you insist that there shall be no difference between light and darkness, what do you but pervert the order of the divine wisdom? Flesh must therefore be flesh, and spirit, spirit. 
each under the law and condition on which God has created them. Now the condition of flesh is that it should have one certain place, its own dimensions, its own form. On that condition Christ assumed the flesh, to which, as Augustine declares, he gave incorruption and glory, but without destroying its nature and reality. Section 25 They object that they have the word by which the will of God has been openly manifested, that is, if we permit them to banish from the church the gift of interpretation which should throw light upon the word. I admit that they have the word, but just as the anthropomorphites of old had it when they made God corporeal, just as Marcion and the Manichees had it when they made the body of Christ celestial or fantastical, they quoted the passages, quote, The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. Christ, quote, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, unquote. Philippians 2, verse 7. But these vain boasters think that there is no power of God unless they fabricate a monster in their own brains by which the whole order of nature is subverted. This rather is to circumscribe the power of God, to attempt to try by our fictions what he can do. From this word they have assumed that the body of Christ is visible in heaven, and yet lurks invisible on the earth under innumerable bits of bread. They will say that this is rendered necessary in order that the body of Christ may be given in the supper. In other words, because they have been pleased to extract a carnal eating from the words of Christ, carried away by their own prejudice, they have found it necessary to coin this subtlety, which is wholly repugnant to Scripture. That we detract in any respect from the power of God is so far from being true that our doctrine is the loudest in extolling it. But as they continue to charge us with robbing God of his honor in rejecting what, according to common apprehension, it is difficult to believe, though it had been promised by the mouth of Christ. I answer, as I lately did, that in the mysteries of faith we do not consult common apprehension, but with the placid docility and spirit of meekness which James recommends, James 1 verse 21, receive the doctrine which has come from heaven, wherein they perniciously err, I am confident that we follow a proper moderation. On hearing the words of Christ, this is my body, they imagine a miracle most remote from his intention. And when from this fiction the grossest absurdities arise, having already by their precipitate haste entangled themselves with snares, they plunge themselves into the abyss of divine omnipotence, that in this way they may extinguish the light of truth. Hence the supercilious moroseness. We have no wish to know how Christ is hid under the bread. We are satisfied with his own words, quote, This is my body, unquote. We again study with no less obedience than care to obtain a sound understanding of this passage as of the whole of Scripture. We do not, with preposterous fervor, rashly and without choice, lay hold on whatever first presents itself to our minds, but after careful meditation embrace the meaning which the Spirit of God suggests. Trusting to Him, we look down, as from a height, on whatever opposition may be offered by earthly wisdom. Nay, we hold our minds captive, not allowing one word of murmur, and humble them, that they may not presume to gainsay. In this way we have arrived at that exposition of the words of Christ, which all who are moderately versed in Scripture know to be perpetually used with regard to the sacraments. Still, in a matter of difficulty, we deem it not unlawful to inquire after the example of the Blessed Virgin, quote, How shall this be? Unquote. Luke 1, verse 34. Section 26. But as nothing will be more effectual to confirm the faith of the pious than to show them that the doctrine which we have laid down is taken from the pure word of God and rests on its authority, I will make this plain with as much brevity as I can. The body with which Christ rose is declared not by Aristotle, but by the Holy Spirit to be finite and to be contained in heaven until the last day. I am not unaware how confidently our opponents evade the passages which are quoted to this effect. Whenever Christ says that he will leave the world and go away, John 14, verse 2 and 28, they reply that that departure was nothing more than a change of mortal state. Were this so, Christ would not substitute the Holy Spirit to supply, as they express it, the defect of his absence, since he does not succeed in place of him, nor, on the other hand, does Christ himself descend from the heavenly glory to assume the condition of a mortal life. Certainly the advent of the Spirit and the ascension of Christ are set against each other, and hence it necessarily follows that Christ dwells with us according to the flesh, in the same way as that in which he sends his Spirit. 
Moreover, he distinctly says that he would not always be in the world with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 11. This saying also they think they admirably dispose of, as if it were a denial by Christ that he would always be poor and mean, or liable to the necessities of a fading life. But this is plainly repugnant to the context, since reference is made not to poverty and want, or the wretched condition of an earthly life, but to worship and honor. The disciples were displeased with the anointing by Mary because they thought it a superfluous and useless expenditure, akin to luxury, and would therefore have preferred that the price which they thought wasted should have been expended on the poor. Christ answers that he will not be always with them to receive such honor. No different exposition is given by Augustine, whose words are by no means ambiguous. When Christ says, quote, Me ye have not always, unquote, he spoke of his bodily presence. In regard to his majesty, in regard to his providence, in regard to his ineffable and invisible grace, is fulfilled what he said, quote, Lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world, unquote. Matthew 28, verse 20. But in regard to the flesh, which the word assumed, in regard to that which was born of the virgin, in regard to that which was apprehended by the Jews, nailed to the tree, suspended on the cross, wrapped in linen clothes, laid in the tomb, and manifested in the resurrection, quote, me ye have not always, unquote. Why? Since he conversed with his disciples in bodily presence for forty days, and going out with them ascended, while they saw, but followed not. He is not here, for he sits there, at the right hand of the Father. And yet he is here, for the presence of his majesty is not withdrawn. Otherwise, as regards the presence of his majesty, we have Christ always, while in regard to his bodily presence, it was rightly said, quote, Me ye have not always, unquote. In respect of bodily presence, the church had him for a few days. Now she holds him by faith, but sees him not with the eye. Here, that I may briefly note this, he makes him present with us in three ways, in majesty, providence, and ineffable grace, under which I comprehend that wondrous communion of his body and blood, provided we understand that it is effected by the power of the Holy Spirit, and not by that fictitious enclosing of his body under the element, since our Lord declared that he had flesh and bones which could be handled and seen. Going away and ascending intimate not that he had the appearance of one going away and ascending, but that he truly did what the words express. Someone will ask, Are we then to assign a certain region of heaven to Christ? I answer with Augustine that this is a curious and superfluous question, provided we believe that he is in heaven. Section 27. What? Does not the very name of ascension, so often repeated, intimate removal from one place to another? This they deny, because by height, according to them, the majesty of empire only is denoted what was the very mode of ascending? Was he not carried up while the disciples looked on? Do not the evangelists clearly relate that he was carried into heaven? These acute sophists reply that a cloud intervened and took him out of their sight to teach the disciples that he would not afterwards be visible in the world, as if he ought not rather to have vanished in a moment to make them believe in his invisible presence or the cloud to have gathered around him before he moved a step. When he is carried aloft into the air and the interposing cloud shows that he is no more to be sought on earth, we safely infer that his dwelling now is in the heavens, as Paul also asserts, bidding us look for him from thence. Philippians 3, verse 20. For this reason the angels remind the disciples that it is vain to keep gazing up into heaven, because Jesus, who was taken up, would come in like manner, as they had seen him ascend. Here the adversaries of sound doctrine escape, as they think, by the ingenious quibble that he will come in visible form, though he never departed from the earth, but remained invisible among his people, as if the angels had insinuated a twofold presence, and not simply made the disciples eyewitnesses of the ascent that no doubt might remain. It was just as if he had said, By ascending to heaven, while you looked on, he has asserted his heavenly power. It remains for you to wait patiently until he again arrived to judge the world. He has not entered into heaven to occupy it alone, but to gather you and all the pious along with him. Section 28. Since the advocates of this spurious dogma are not ashamed to honor it with the suffrages of the ancients, and especially of Augustine, how perverse they are in the attempt I will briefly explain. Pious and learned men have collected the passages, and therefore I am unwilling to plead a concluded cause. Anyone who wishes may consult their writings. 
I will not even collect from Augustine what might be pertinent to the matter, but will be contented to show briefly that without all controversy he is wholly ours. The pretense of our opponents, when they would wrest him from us, that throughout his works the flesh and blood of Christ are said to be dispensed in the supper, namely the victim once offered on the cross, is frivolous, saying he at the same time calls it either the Eucharist or sacrament of the body. But it is unnecessary to go far to find the sense in which he uses the terms flesh and blood, since he himself explains, saying, that the sacraments receive names from their similarity to the things which they designate, and that therefore the sacrament of the body is after a certain manner the body. With this agrees another well-known passage, quote, The Lord hesitated not to say, This is my body, when he gave the sign, unquote. They again object that Augustine says distinctly that the body of Christ falls upon the earth and enters the mouth. But this is in the same sense in which he affirms that it is consumed, for he conjoins both at the same time. There is nothing repugnant to this in his saying that the bread is consumed after the mystery is performed. For he had said a little before, quote, As these things are known to men, when they are done by men, they may receive honor as being religious, but not as being wonderful, unquote. His meaning is not different in the passage which our opponents too rashly appropriate to themselves, viz. that Christ in a manner carried himself in his own hands when he held out the mystical bread to his disciples, for by interposing the expression, in a manner, he declares that he was not really or truly included under the bread, nor is it strange, since he elsewhere plainly contends, that bodies could not be without particular localities, and being nowhere would have no existence. It is a paltry cavil that he is not there treating of the supper in which God exerts a special power. The question had been raised as to the flesh of Christ, and the holy man professedly replying says, quote, Christ gave immortality to his flesh, but did not destroy its nature. In regard to this form, we are not to suppose that it is everywhere diffused, for we must beware not to rear up the divinity of the man so as to take away the reality of the body. It does not follow that that which is in God is everywhere as God, unquote. He immediately subjoins the reason, quote, One person is God and man, and both one Christ, everywhere inasmuch as he is God, and in heaven inasmuch as he is man, unquote. How careless would it have been not to accept the mystery of the supper, a matter so grave and serious, if it was in any respect adverse to the doctrine which he was handling. And yet, if any one will attentively read what follows shortly after, he will find that under that general doctrine the supper also is comprehended, that Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and also Son of Man, is everywhere wholly present as God in the temple of God, that is, in the church, as an inhabiting God, and in some place in heaven because of the dimensions of his real body. We see how, in order to unite Christ with the church, he does not bring his body out of heaven, this he certainly would have done had the body of Christ not been truly our food unless when included under the bread. Elsewhere, explaining how believers now possess Christ, he says, quote, You have him by the sign of the cross, by the sacrament of baptism, by the meat and drink of the altar, unquote. How rightly he enumerates a superstitious rite among the symbols of Christ's presence, I dispute not. But in comparing the presence of the flesh to the sign of the cross, he sufficiently shows that he has no idea of a twofold body of Christ, one lurking concealed under the bread, and another sitting visible in heaven. If there is any need of explanation, it is immediately added, quote, In respect of the presence of his majesty, we have Christ always. In respect of the presence of his flesh, it is rightly said, quote, Me ye have not always. Close, quote, unquote. They object that he also adds, Quote, in respect of ineffable and invisible grace is fulfilled what was said by him open inner quote I am with you always even to the end of the world close inner quote unquote but this is nothing in their favor for it is at length restricted to his majesty which is always opposed to body while the flesh is expressly distinguished from grace and virtue the same antithesis elsewhere occurs when he says that quote, Christ left the disciples in bodily presence that he might be with them in spiritual presence, unquote. Here it is clear that the essence of the flesh is distinguished from the virtue of the spirit, which conjoins us with Christ when, in respect of space, we are at a great distance from him. He repeatedly uses the same mode of expression as when he says, quote, He is to come to the quick and the dead in bodily presence, according to the rule of faith and sound doctrine. 
for in spiritual presence he was to come to them and to be with the whole church and the world until its consummation therefore this discourse is directed to believers whom he had begun already to save by corporeal presence and whom he was to leave in corporeal absence that by spiritual presence he might preserve them with the father unquote. by corporeal to understand visible is mere trifling since he both opposes his body to his divine power and by adding that he might quote preserve them with the father unquote, clearly expresses that he sends his grace to us from heaven by means of the spirit section 29 since they put so much confidence in his hiding place of invisible presence, let us see how well they conceal themselves in it. First, they cannot produce a syllable from Scripture to prove that Christ is invisible, but they take for granted what no sound man will admit, that the body of Christ cannot be given in the supper unless covered with a mask of bread. This is the very point in dispute, so far as it from occupying the place of the first principle. And while they thus prate, they are forced to give Christ a twofold body, because, according to them, it is visible in itself in heaven, but in the supper is invisible by a special mode of dispensation. The beautiful consistency of this may easily be judged, both from other passages of Scripture and from the testimony of Peter. Peter says that the heavens must receive or contain Christ till he come again. Acts 3, verse 21. These men teach that he is in every place, but without form. They say that it is unfair to subject a glorious body to the ordinary laws of nature, that this answer draws along with it the delirious dream of Servetus, which all pious minds justly abhor that his body was absorbed by his divinity. I do not say that this is their opinion, but if it is considered one of the properties of a glorified body to fill all things in an invisible manner, it is plain that the corporeal substance is abolished, and no distinction is left between his Godhead and his human nature. Again, if the body of Christ is so multiform and diversified that it appears in one place and in another is invisible, where is there anything of the nature of body with its proper dimensions, and where is its unity? Far more correct is Tertullian, who contends that the body of Christ was natural and real, because its figure is set before us in the mystery of the supper as a pledge and assurance of spiritual life. And certainly Christ said of his glorified body, quote, Handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have, unquote. Luke 24, verse 39. Here, by the lips of Christ himself, the reality of his flesh is proved by its admitting of being seen and handled. Take these away, and it will cease to be flesh. They always betake themselves to their lurking place of dispensation, which they have fabricated. But it is our duty so to embrace what Christ absolutely declares as to give it an unreserved assent. He proves that he is not a phantom, because he is visible in his flesh. Take away what he claims is proper to the nature of his body, and must not a new definition of body be devised. Then, however they may turn themselves about, they will not find any place for their fictitious dispensation in that passage in which Paul says that, quote, Our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, unquote. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. We are not to hope for conformity to Christ in these qualities which they ascribe to him as a body without bounds and invisible. They will not find anyone so stupid as to be persuaded of this great absurdity. Let them not, therefore, set it down as one of the properties of Christ's glorious body, that it is at the same time in many places and in no place. In short, let them either openly deny the resurrection of his flesh, or admit that Christ, when invested with celestial glory, did not lay aside his flesh, but is to make us in our flesh his associates and partakers of the same glory, since we are to have a common resurrection with him. For what does Scripture throughout deliver more clearly than that as Christ assumed our flesh when he was born of the Virgin and suffered in our true flesh when he made satisfaction for us? So on rising again, he resumed the same true flesh and carried it with him to heaven. The hope of our resurrection and ascension to heaven is that Christ rose again and ascended, and, as Tertullian says, quote, carried an earnest of our resurrection along with him into heaven, unquote. Moreover, how weak and fragile would this hope be, had not this very flesh of ours in Christ been truly raised up and entered into the kingdom of heaven. But the essential properties of a body are to be confined by space to have dimension and form, have done then with that foolish fiction which affixes the minds of men as well as Christ to bread 
For to what end this occult presence under the bread, save that those who wish to have Christ conjoined with them may stop short at the symbol? That our Lord himself wished us to withdraw not only our eyes, but all our senses from the earth, forbidding the woman to touch him until he had ascended to the Father. John 20, verse 17. When he sees Mary with pious reverential zeal hastening to kiss his feet, there could be no reason for his disapproving and forbidding her to touch him before he had ascended to heaven, unless he wished to be sought nowhere else. The objection that he afterwards appeared to Stephen is easily answered. It was not necessary for our Savior to change his place, as he could give the eyes of his servant a power of vision which could penetrate to heaven. The same account is to be given in the case of Paul. The objection that Christ came forth from the closed sepulchre and came in to his disciples while the doors were shut, Matthew 28, verse 6, and John 20, verse 19, gives no better support to their error. For as the water, just as if it had been a solid pavement, furnished a path to our Savior when he walked on it, Matthew 14, so it is not strange that the hard stone yielded to his step. Although it is more probable that the stone was removed at his command and forthwith, after giving him a passage, returned to its place. To enter while the doors were shut was not so much to penetrate through solid matter as to make a passage for himself by divine power and stand in the midst of his disciples in a most miraculous manner. They gained nothing by quoting the passage from Luke, in which it is said that Christ suddenly vanished from the eyes of the disciples with whom he had journeyed to Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 31 and withdrawing from their sight, he did not become invisible. He only disappeared. Thus, Luke declares that on the journeying with them, he did not assume a new form, but that, quote, their eyes were holding, unquote. But these men not only transform Christ, that he may live on the earth, but pretend that there is another elsewhere of a different description. In short, by thus trifling, they, not in direct terms indeed, but by a circumlocution, make a spirit of the flesh of Christ, and not contented with this, give him properties altogether opposite. Hence it necessarily follows that he must be twofold. Section 30. Granting what they had certainly talk of the invisible presence, it will still be necessary to prove the immensity, without which it is vain to attempt to include Christ under the bread. Unless the body of Christ can be everywhere without any boundaries of space, it is impossible to believe that he is hid in the supper under the bread. Hence, they have been under the necessity of introducing the monstrous dogma of ubiquity. But it has been demonstrated by strong and clear passages of Scripture, first, that it is bounded by the dimensions of the human body, and secondly, that its ascension into heaven made it plain that it is not in all places, but on passing to a new one, leaves the one formerly occupied. The promise to which they appeal, quote, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, unquote, is not to be applied to the body. First, then, a perpetual connection with Christ could not exist unless he dwells in us corporeally, independently of the use of the supper. And therefore, they have no good ground for disputing so bitterly concerning the words of Christ in order to include him under the bread and the supper. Secondly, the context proves that Christ is not speaking at all of his flesh but promising the disciples his invincible aid to guard and sustain them against all the assaults of Satan and the world. For in appointing them to a difficult office, he confirms them by the assurance of his presence, that they might neither hesitate to undertake it, nor be timorous in the discharge of it, as if he had said that his invincible protection would not fail them. Unless we would throw everything into confusion, must it not be necessary to distinguish the mode of presence, and indeed some, to their great disgrace, choose rather to betray their ignorance than give up one iota of their error. I speak not of papists, whose doctrine is more tolerable, or at least more modest, but some are so hurried away by contention as to say that on account of the union of natures in Christ, wherever his divinity is, there his flesh, which cannot be separated from it, is also, as if that union formed a kind of medium of the two natures, making him to be neither God nor man. So held Eutyches, and after him Servetus. But it is clearly gathered from Scripture that the one person of Christ is composed of two natures, but so that each has its peculiar properties unimpaired. That Eutyches was justly condemned, they will not have the hardihood to deny. It is strange that they attend not to the cause of condemnation, these, that destroying the distinction between the natures and insisting only on the unity of person, he converted God into man, and man into God. What madness, then, is it to confound heaven with earth sooner than not withdraw the body of Christ from its heavenly sanctuary? In regard to the passages which they adduce, 
quote, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, unquote, John 3, verse 13. Quote, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, unquote, John 1, verse 18. They betray the same stupidity, scouting the communion of properties. Idiomatum, Greek word, Chi, Omicron, Iota, Nu, Omega, Nu, Iota, Alpha, Nu, Koinonian, which not without reason was formerly invented by holy fathers. Certainly when Paul says of the princes of this world that they, quote, crucified the Lord of glory, unquote, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, he means not that he suffered anything in his divinity, but that Christ, who was rejected and despised and suffered in the flesh, was likewise God and the Lord of glory. In this way, both the Son of Man was in heaven because he was also Christ, and he who, according to the flesh, dwelt as the Son of Man on earth, was also God in heaven. For this reason he is said to have descended from heaven in respect of his divinity, not that his divinity quitted heaven to conceal itself in the prison of the body, but because, although he filled all things, it yet resided in the humanity of Christ corporeally, that is, naturally, and in an ineffable manner. There is a trite distinction in the schools which I hesitate not quote. Although the whole Christ is everywhere, yet everything which is in him is not everywhere. I wish the schoolmen had duly weighed the force of this sentence, as it would have obviated their absurd fiction of the corporeal presence of Christ. Therefore, while our whole mediator is everywhere, he is always present with his people, and in the supper exhibits his presence in a special manner. Yet so, that while he is wholly present, not everything which is in him is present, because, as has been said, in his flesh he will remain in heaven till he come to judgment. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 three states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.